0: Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the EMG Health podcast. As you might be able to tell, we're doing things a little differently today. We're not in the studio as we usually be, but uh, due to the outbreak of of coronavirus, like the rest of the country, everyone at EMG Health is now working from home. Now, as a healthcare podcast, it's crucial that we report on these challenging times of COVID-19 and connect our listeners with all those on the front line of this virus. Today, we're very fortunate and privileged and grateful to have two special guests with us to share their experiences of COVID-19. So welcome, Anna and Emma.
1: Hello. Good morning.
0: Hi, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, all right. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. Now, uh, Anna is an emergency department consultant at a hospital in London, uh, and she's currently treating uh, patients with COVID-19. Emma is an account director from Liverpool and she's a mother of two who's recently been diagnosed with and recovered from the virus. Um, So they're both uniquely positioned to offer real insights into what we're facing here. Thanks for taking time out uh, during this very stressful period of your lives and particularly on uh, on a Saturday morning. So thank you very much. Anna, if I can start with you. Most people will be aware of the general symptoms and have some knowledge of the origins of the virus, but could you briefly explain what makes COVID-19 different to other virus outbreaks such as SARS or MERS that we've experienced recently?
1: Yeah, so uh, um, it's often compared to SARS and MERS and quite rightly it's the same uh, family of viruses and it presents in a very similar way. I think the main difference and uh, the reason it's been so challenging to manage um, is that it's just very, very infectious. So um, whereas, um, say SARS, for example, we had uh, in the whole outbreak about 8,000 cases, you know, we're hitting 500,000 cases now with um covid and still rising so every patient is infecting three or so other patients and that's been really difficult to understand and difficult to control um so that might be because people aren't presenting with symptoms that would make them think that they're sick so they're not staying away from other people or it's just transmitting itself in a way that we don't quite understand so initially we thought it was air droplets um you know so actual droplets of um uh, your respiratory fluid um, but now we think maybe it's aerosolised so it's sort of spray of, of breath that can um, spread the virus around so it's just spreading much much more um, uh, profusely than we'd expect um, well that, that we've been used to with the other ones and that's been making it very difficult to uh, to control
0: Okay uh, and you and... You mentioned it's hard to control, but it's also hard to even know what the symptoms are in the first place. So, Emma, from your point of view, you were diagnosed with COVID-19. Thankfully, you're back home with your family now. But what was it that led you to first suspect or to find out that you had the virus?
2: Um, Well, I was um, completely unaware, if I'm honest. Um, I was in hospital. I just had a minor procedure um, the day before and I I was experiencing abdominal pains and that's what took me to hospital and they admitted me for that um, and it was the following morning actually when the consultants came around and doing their morning checks um, that they literally just walked away from my bed and I and as I sat up from um, a, um, an examination I a cough came over me that I hadn't had before and it was it was um, Uh, I couldn't catch my breath. And I I felt like I couldn't get my breath. And and the consultant came rushing back and said, how long have you had that cough? And I said, that's just come from nowhere, actually. Um, And that that kind of um, kick-started a a process then whereby they started asking further questions about where I'd been recently, if I'd been in contact with anybody with COVID-19. And they decided to isolate me almost immediately. So... Yeah. Within about half an hour of, of that cough, um, they kind of whisked me off into a side room. And unfortunately, the hospital I was in in Liverpool was was um, unusually quiet. Actually, I'd, I'd been in hospital in the December um, for the same reason I was in the um, having the, the procedure, and um, and it was very very so I was I was. Um, quite bemused at how quiet it was yeah and then that and that kind of chain started you know I was kind of in lockdown I suppose in that room they, they took the swabs um, they took blood tests um, uh, they were only coming in obviously with with gowns and masks on and um, if I had to leave the room I had to wear a mask um, and then it was within I think it was probably just a little over 24 hours um, that the results came back and and to be honest I was more concerned about the other thing that was going on because that was causing me a lot of pain. Um, I had some mild symptoms. I had a very, very dry cough. I mean, I wouldn't have even classed it as a cough. Um, I was experiencing some temperatures, so I was having some chills, particularly at nighttime, um, where I just couldn't get warm. Um, but because I was on um, quite a lot of medication and antibiotics um, as well, I was on IV antibiotics and IV paracetamol as well, as other bits and pieces. That was potentially um, controlling any kind of temperature as well. Yeah. So um, within the 24 hours, I got the call from Infectious Diseases um, late one evening while I was there, and they said you've tested positive, and and then that again chain started a reaction for further tests and further swabs and samples and things like that.
0: Right. So I I, I guess in many ways it was quite lucky that you were probably, one, already in hospital and and, and two, the hospital was quite quiet. Um,
2: It was pure luck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, hearing the hospital is quite. I think it's quite an unusual thing at the moment. Anna, Anna, the the current environment inside UK hospitals has been described as almost a parallel universe. Can you give us some insights now as to what it's like on the front line and, and, and maybe describe what the average day is like for a doctor or a nurse at the moment during these challenging times?
1: yeah it's it's very very different to um what would be normal for us so um it depends on what your role is what you'd be doing in the daytime but generally before all this we would meet at 8am in the emergency department on the shop floor and that's the clinical area and we would um, take a hand over from the night team and divvy up our staff to the different areas so we'd have um, an urgent care area for minor injuries a majors area so trolleyed area for patients who can't um, walk around very well. And then we'd have a resuscitation area for the very sick. All that has had to completely change. So we've doubled the footprint of our emergency department. And we've tried to our very, very best to try and separate patients who could have COVID-19 from the patients who do not. And that has just been a never ending challenge. So, you know, we'd be very reliant on WhatsApp and, and the messages just don't stop coming. We're constantly having problems, you know, we might have a psychiatric patient in the department who yeah. won't um you know follow quite the same guidance that we're asking them to do. We might have a drunk patient who's um walking into rooms and we're having to get security. Um we have family members who insist on coming in um, which is obviously quite understandable. People are terrified, but um, uh, that's spreading a lot. Someone bought their family or four children, you know, there's challenges every day. So now we have this meeting, we have to take it into one of the areas where we know we're um, cohorting away from COVID-19 patients and then divvy up our staff between the, um, different areas and then they're staying in that area. So we're not moving between them. So in some oh. areas you're in full protective equipment, that isn't very uncomfortable. It's also quite a laborious procedure. They have to go in one door and out the other door as a one-way system. Um, stocks are constantly having to be changed. So uh, as well as the PPE equipment, we are, um, going through uh, oxygen mask, oxygen tubing, ventilator mask tubing at, at an alarming rate. So that's constantly having to be stopped up. So everyone's yeah. working in a very different way. Um, in some ways, uh, the general medical patients that we have uh, or that we've been used to, those numbers have... have decreased quite a bit and there's been a lot of efforts to try and treat those patients in the community and stop them coming into hospital and there has been some effect from that Um, but we are as you say absolutely being overwhelmed with these respiratory cases so these breathing difficulty cases Um, and um, some of the COVID-19 patients are presenting in ways that you wouldn't nor you wouldn't immediately associate so for example an elderly person who has a fall and then we just suddenly realize as we explore it a little bit more that they do have COVID-19 and they'll yeah. be in an area with um, other vulnerable patients and then we have to think again so it's just a constant challenge Um we describe it a little bit as fighting fires I say in A&E we are pretty used to problem solving and it is just um, minute by minute problem solving and fortunately I work with an excellent team of people who are um, uniquely skilled in that area and I think they're doing yeah. an excellent job.
0: You mentioned there about the, the you're getting through equipment at, at, you know, at alarming rate have you noticed any shortcomings that uh, you know are, are you running out of stuff yet or are you still got enough you're just getting through it at a, so, a high rate?
1: Yeah so unfortunately yes we do we run out of things all the time we've had to be quite um, uh, yeah quite inventive with our things so um, yes. it's hit the news a lot about these personal protective equipment Um we have you know been doing our very best to follow government guidelines and initially they were saying you know just a surgical mask and normal gloves for these people who we don't have confirmed infections but it's become very apparent that the people coming through their door do have COVID-19, it is, it's very yeah. clear that that we're dealing with patients then that uh, will have confirmed infections soon. So this idea that you're working with them without the full equipment is very difficult. So, you know, one of my colleague consultants went around all the screw fixes in the area and bought goggles for all of us. Um, these are just yeah. this isn't equipment that we're getting centrally. Um, it's something we're bringing up all the time. All the... Um, All the medical stocks are really held centrally by the government and and being divvied out. And I realise why that needs to happen. Um, But when you're on the front line, we're we're just trying to keep our staff safe. So we're trying to do whatever we can to, to make sure we have what we need. But we are running out and we have to come up with solutions amongst ourselves, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're here. We're hearing that a lot. We, we've just set up a page on our website for people that are, are, are short of anything that they can put requests on there. And, and we, we, we're we working with as many medical device companies as we can to find out where they've got, you know, excess of, of equipment that we can then try and hopefully put put into the right places. So, um, yeah, we're hearing that a lot. Um, you know, we're we're hearing a lot in the media that these are unprecedented times, and, and none of us have experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. We were just talking off air about recessions and stuff. We've been through those in the past, so we sort of know what to expect. But with this, we've we've never seen anything like it, really. Um You know, as as a doctor, do you, do you think the NHS is prepared for a pandemic such as this, or or, or you know, can you even prepare for something like this?
1: Oh, I think it's it's very difficult. There isn't anything in our lifetime that really compares. I think that the best in history, the, the best thing that compares, is probably the, um, the Spanish flu outbreak that, that affected about five hundred, was it five hundred million people in the in the world um, at that time, and um, uh, that just spread like wildfire. Um, but uh, I mean, what can you do? I think we were lucky in that we had some warning. We could see it spread across yeah. the world. We could see what was happening with our colleagues in China. And then in Italy, Italy is a health service that's much more comparable to, to what we have in the a- NHS. So that really um, lit a fire under us. And some preparations did start to go in place. So we were preparing and rearranging our department about two weeks before we really started to, to feel the impact of it. So we did feel um, a bit more prepared, perhaps more so than some of my colleagues in other hospitals so i feel quite fortunate there in terms of what the government has done of course with the benefit of hindsight um it feels like they could have done things differently yeah. Um, ensuring stocks are ready and um, being distributed earlier. I mean, that's what we really feel on the front line. It's very frustrating when we feel like we can't offer the treatments we know would help. It's very yeah. frustrating when we have to put our own health at risk. Um, and unfortunately, we have had staff members who have got quite unwell um, as a res- directly as a result of this. Um, but, um, and that obviously with- has a
0: big knock-on effect as well with the amount of people that can get treated, I guess.
1: Yeah, so um, just to put it in perspective. I have um, a roster of about fifteen registrars, so that's um, senior-level doctors who can be independent decision makers and give like guidance to the more junior staff. Um, and at the moment, seven of those are off in self-isolation, so I'm kind of running at half staff at the moment. Um, so how do we plug those gaps? And uh, that's you know just a constant challenge. So we as consultants are spreading ourselves very thin. We're going to be going to offer twenty-four-hour cover. So so we only have seven consultants and we would going to try and spread that over 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we'll, we'll do our very best to do that.
0: So, so at times when you're needing more, you've, you've actually got less than you would normally have. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of, of, of negative stuff coming out of this. Um, Emma, from from your point of view, uh, when you were at the height of your illness, how did you manage to stay positive and 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 you know, what sort of things kept you going through your time in hospital?
2: Um, I've... Uh, yeah, I'm lucky enough to have two young children and I've got a very supportive family. So um, whilst it was quite lonely, I suppose, in that room for, for all those for, for those few days that I was there, um, the nurses uh, and the staff at the hospital as well were really, really encouraging and really supportive. Um, I FaceTimed friends and I saw family and um, on, on, on FaceTime and things like that. Um, And I just kept in touch with what was going on around the world and the news. And I think it was important to try and maintain a level of normality as much as possible. Um, I think it's important when you're in those kind of situations anyway. Hospitals are a place where they treat the sick and the poorly. So, you know, usually you're not feeling at your best anyway. Um, But, yeah, I think, um, you know, the the nurses and the doctors there were really great. They they, um, kind of checked up on me. Um, really regularly Um, they brought me cups of tea as often as they could Um, and you know whenever they did come in to do the the usual observations uh, we chat about things and you know it didn't feel like I was there um, you know really on my own too often Um, it was great that I kind of had the support of the staff and again the support of my family and friends were on the phone regularly as well so and that kind of quickly passed the time I suppose.
0: Yeah, I guess the, the the big challenge at the moment is from all all sides. Is there's so much confusion and and, and, and people are getting overwhelmed with the amount of information that they're hearing um, from. You know, people are getting this from work, from from the government, from from social media, from family and friends. You know, Anna, from your point of view, what what can we do to sift through this misinformation and and what should we be listening to?
1: It's really difficult, isn't it? It's coming from from yeah. all angles. And um, I think if you want um to know what we know as clinicians on the front line and know what exactly what our government is um uh doing about this then the public health england website is the only one to really go by there are other um uh, health information websites the who the cdc um but they may not be following exactly the same processes that we are in the uk so i think for people in the uk if they want to know want um, advice about what to do the nhs website um or the public health england website are the the main resources to get sort of unbiased um and up-to-date information
0: Brilliant. OK. As I said, there is a huge amount of, of stuff being covered out there. But a question for both of you. Is there anything from, from your personal experiences that you f- you feel isn't being covered in the media and, and probably should be getting more exposure and airtime than it is that you think might be able to help?
1: Um, so from my point of view, uh, there's two things, really. Um, people still don't understand that uh, hospital might not be the best place to go um, for This Uh, in particular, there's a lot of well people who are still coming and trying to get tested. Um, Now, that might be because the initial strategy was to test as many people as possible um, and isolate them in the community. That changed quite a while ago. Um, I'm not saying it's necessarily right, but we do not have the capacity to test everyone at the moment. We are just testing people in hospital. Um, and so these people who are approaching the hospital and asking to be tested because they have some of the symptoms or sometimes in some cases, no symptoms, um, they are putting themselves at risk and then they go home on public transport having been to quite an infectious area. So that really worries me. So I wish there was a little bit more information about um, about that out there. Um, the other thing, and it's quite an uncomfortable subject, is for years now um, there's been a bit of an unrealistic expectation about what we can do for our um, frailer or elderly relatives and more elderly patients. And um, there's an expectation amongst family members in particular that we do. Uh, as they would put it do everything for this patient so I put it that way and that's put them on ventilators jump on their chest if their heart stops um you know i've had families of um, 101 year olds who would insist on us trying to do cpr if their heart stops and unfortunately we're not immortal um and as physicians, those those sort of actions we know are, are, are really quite harmful to the patients and really quite distressing to families, patients and the team who have to do these. So um, we've been trying to get families involved in those conversations for years, but there's a lot of resistance. And we are at the stage now where we just have to, rather than you know have those discussions for long periods of time, we have to make those decisions quite early. Yeah, and that course. is an uncomfortable subject. And I wish there was a little bit more in the media to prepare families for those discussions so if there could be just a little bit more about the outcomes what those sorts of procedures involve why it's not appropriate for elderly yeah. and frail people to have um, them put on ventilators then maybe they would be more prepared and less surprised when we're saying we cannot offer this to your mother yeah. your father your grandfather
0: yeah no t- tough conversations but the more prepared you are the easier they are to uh, to have i guess but uh, and, and emma from your point of view is there anything that you experience that you think hasn't been uh, covered in the media at all
2: um, only really uh the milder symptoms I guess. Um and I think that there are probably and I know certainly from my friends and family, um I put something on Facebook shortly after I came out of hospital. Um I, I was kind of in two minds as to whether I should or not. And and it was really just to to say the symptoms may be mild and and, um and you know not I, I was kind of expecting this awful, awful cough that was kind of gonna le- leave me paralysed or breathless, and that didn't happen. Yeah. Um and I think because of that, had I not been in hospital um, and had I not been tested, I would just naturally have assumed that I'd had a mild cold and potentially carried on about my day and you know got, carried on going out to work and, and and you know and being in social areas. So. Yeah. um You know, obviously this is in the media about staying at home and I think it's just super, super important that people take it seriously. Um, And if they're displaying really mild symptoms or they're not sure, then just be safe and just stay at home and um, and do everything you can to protect yourself and, and those in the community who are tend
0: to be more vulnerable. I, I, I couldn't agree more with that we, we took the decision two weeks ago to uh, close the office when actually a, a mutual friend I think of both of yours was taken ill and she thought she might have the symptoms but rather than putting anyone else at risk we took the decision to close the office down and, and it turns out she was diagnosed with COVID-19 and I think for the sake of, of a little bit of awkwardness in changing your daily routines The fact that you know that you've probably helped save some lives, it's just not worth even considering which one of the two choices you make. It's really not. Definitely the right thing to do. And and just finally, from both of you, is there any uh, other messages that you'd like to give to the general public at this time that, that might be helpful?
1: Um. Well, in terms of self-isolation, I think people still are pushing the boundaries a little bit. So everyone can make excuses from themselves, saying, "Oh, well, you know, my situation is different. If I go and see my boyfriend across London, he's been self-isolating." You can always convince yourself that it's different for you. And I think the answer is nothing is acceptable. I mean, I even had a message from my mother today saying, "You know, I drove a couple of miles down the road to go and have a walk in this park, and I don't think I'll get arrested." Well, it's not about you being arrested; it's about taking anything outside your immediate area. And and as we said, you know, as it's so difficult to know who is ill and so difficult to control what you touch... um, Anything beyond what the advice um, from the government is is completely unacceptable. So I'm afraid it is one walk a day, it is one dog walk a day, it is say doing your exercise from your immediate area, and um, people are still trying to justify their variations of that. And so, so that really is is what what needs to stop.
0: I, I, the, the way I'm looking at this is, is you know, if, if I found out I was the person that had given it to one of my close family members or anyone for that matter, but particularly a close family member and and they died of it, how bad would I feel then? Is it worth taking that risk? And, and the answer is obviously no, it's just not worth it. Mm,
1: yeah. I, I have a, a personal example, my, um, a very difficult situation for my family. So I have a, my father is quite medically vulnerable. He f- fulfills pretty much every risk factor from the um, COVID-19 and Sadly, um, a couple of weeks ago, he one of his very close friends died from something completely unrelated, and it was quite an expected death. But um, his funeral was uh, last Friday. Uh, there were 70 people um, due to come, and it was as the um, self-isolation advice had hit the media. And all of them should have stayed at home. All those, uh, you know, everyone there was in their 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh they should have all not gone and a few people did cancel but um the, the widow you know she felt very strongly that she needed support she individually messaged people saying please come um my father felt like he certainly couldn't uh, let her down couldn't let his friend down so he went um and that's a that sort of difficult decision and it's very difficult to to, to justify that you know um, so he says of course i would i would never let my friend down i wouldn't um not be there to support her however How guilty would he feel that, you know, if he's the person that infected everyone else at that funeral and then someone else died? So that sort of logic doesn't seem to be um, quite getting through when there's such uh, strong emotions involved, weddings, funerals, um, important gatherings. It can be very difficult to make those decisions and be quite, um, uh, well, by the book about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: From a more personal perspective as well, you know, we've got
2: I've got two small children, so a four year old and a one year old, and and um, we're also my wife and I are also carers for for my mother in law, who's um who's quite poorly as well uh, with dementia, and so she's kind of falls into that vulnerable category as well. Um, and whilst I was home, you know, I I tried to distance myself as much as possible from her and the family, but um, that that wasn't the point. The point was that you know. I think everyone is becoming so much more resourceful and having two small children at home who obviously naturally are so used to being at school with their school friends and going to parties and things like that. Um, You know, I think people have to become a lot more resourceful as well in terms of entertaining the kids at home. So. Um, I completely appreciate that there is that, um, you know, that desire or that that maybe we could just go here or maybe we could just pop there. Um, And, you know, I think that the message has to be stay at home, you know, do things that are more um, virtual uh perhaps you know as a as a as a mum's group for my my little girl's nursery we're all doing daily stories, so we've kind of got a rotor of all us all reading stories to the kids once a day and oh, and we communicate via facebook and we do all of those kind of things you know and we we're doing the joe wicks um yeah. uh, daily uh, exercises and you know and I think Uh, And I think that's the way to go. And and yes, it is difficult. um, And yes, these are unprecedented times, but we all have such a responsibility, a social responsibility um, to keep as many people as safe as possible. And, you know, hopefully, um, you know, this doesn't this doesn't last too, too, too much longer. Um, But I think as a result of this, we will start to. Um, come out of it uh, in, a, in a different mindset um, of how we kind of go into the
1: future as well.
0: Yeah. Sorry, Anna, go
1: on. Oh, it's just, I was just going to I'd like to think that something positive is going to come out of this. Um, we are learning to work in a different way. We are sort of maybe getting that bit of time with our families that we haven't had for quite some time, prioritising in a different way, learning to be more flexible, learning to not put ourselves first there are possibly some positives that will come out of all this um so hopefully we can we can start to see where where we've been going wrong uh, just by having a little bit of um reflection
0: time i I was talking to a ceo of a company yesterday who's really really concerned that the the current climate means he's gonna have to shut his business down and you know talk about looking at the silver lining He, he he said look if it happens it happens it means I get to spend more time with my two kids um, that I've been wanting to do for absolutely ages. So I think you have got to look at the positives. There's so much negativity. There's going to be bad things happen. We know that, but it's 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 that mindset as you mentioned. How can we make the best of this current situation? Yeah. Well, look, thank you both for joining me today. It's uh, It's been absolutely fantastic chatting to you both. Anna, obviously, thank you for taking time out of what must be a very, very hectic schedule. I know you only got in at three o'clock this morning. So thank you very mm-hmm. much for that. You're and welcome. Emma, I, I, I know that you're still recovering. And, and so um, thank you for your insights. It's been great talking to you both. And I wish you both the very best.
2: Absolute pleasure. Thank you again. No, thanks.
0: No problem. Thank you very much. To all of our listeners, these are challenging and uncertain times, but we're doing everything we can to bring you the most up-to-date research and news on COVID-19. So do head over to our designated page that we've now got on emg-health.com forward slash COVID-19. As we've been saying here, you know, every day is one day closer to this finishing. So just remember that we're a day closer. Thank you for joining us. Stay inside, stay safe, and we'll see you soon for another episode of the EMG Health podcast. Thank you.